Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And i got to tell you something, people. For Easter, we didn't know what to have for dinner. I didn't want ham. It's too salty. You know, I have to watch my sodium. So I went, and I've never done this, and we cooked lamb. And I'm going to tell you something. I was intimidated because leg of lamb sounds so highfalutin and just, like, be hard to make. And it was honestly one of the easiest recipes I've ever done. I'm telling you, we got the lamb, the half a lamb leg or whatever, poked a few holes in it, put some garlic in it, put some pepper on it, some uh, no-sodium seasoning on it, threw it in the oven for an hour at 350, and it came out amazing. And now I have enough left over to make gyros. So it was, it was good. That's the thing, people. If you want to cook, well, you know, we, we'll talk at the end. You can buy my cookbook at StopTheSalt.com. But if you want to cook and you don't know really how to make a recipe, that's why YouTube is around and that's why the Internet's around. So check it out. So anyway, we have a great show today. I've been, I've been talking to this guy on Twitter for a while. And uh, I was lucky enough, he actually sent me one of his, uh, he sent me a video a while back of a single of his. And he's in a very popular band that's touring now. And my guest is Bill Leverty. How you doing, Bill? Hey, doing great, Steve. Thanks so much for having me, man. No problem. I, it's so funny. We were just talking before you came on that you're you're from. Uh, well, I know you're from Richmond. I didn't know you were living there. But now, now you, you grew up in Richmond. Now, when you were a kid, what were some of your musical influences? What what did you listen to? Because <clears throat> Richmond is, it, it's. I'm sure you had an influx of southern rock, country, and rock. I mean, what was what was your what what was listened to around your household? You uh, you nailed it. Uh, uh, aside from that, also funk was a big influence of mine um, because when I was a really young kid, as soon as I was allowed to deliver papers and, and you know have a job, I, I got paper routes. And um, I think I had to be twelve to get a work permit. So at the age of twelve, I was out delivering papers, and my district manager liked my work ethic and. Um, he had this idea of taking some of the paper routes that nobody wanted and using me to assist him in delivering these routes. And um, he listened to the funk station here in Richmond. And um, so I was exposed to all the great funk artists back in, their, in the 70s. And um, that was a big influence on me. And I, I actually did a cover tunes album that has a bunch of songs that influenced me you know ohio players and stevie wonder and stuff like that but um you know back back in the early days of growing up in here here in richmond we had a couple of cool radio stations that were alternative back in in that days which which meant something different than it does now but they played underground kind of music and i was listening to that station but i also love you know pop music and back then pop as you know was a lot different than it is today it was Great songwriting and great singers and, and great musicians. And we also had uh, a lot of southern and country stuff that was played on the rock stations, too. So I was kind of exposed to a, a good little variety of everything. You know, it's funny you say that about the, the songwriting and the pop. And you're right. Like, the pop for for us, you know, because we're around the same age, the pop was, you know, Ventura Highway by America or things that now are on, like, classic rock. But that was considered more pop back then. At least for me, when we would drive, you know, we would, and Neil Diamond was popping. I think now Neil yeah. Diamond was thing, but there was so many. You're right, pop was very different than rock, but pop was sort of like was mellow rock. It was very weird. It really was di- uh, different back then, and um, you know, a lot of the country songs that were hits back then crossed over to pop as well. And you know, there wasn't really that much heavy rock in the uh, on the radio back then. 
but you know, I managed to kind of listen to. I guess I just gravitated to guitars and, and the way the guitar sounded, and singers, and great songs. And I feel like we, were, you know, our generation was spoiled with with great songs. And I don't want to sound like my parents, right. but uh, you know, they, you know, nowadays things have changed so much. But um, fortunately, my daughter. Uh, who grew up listening to the Beatles and classical music when she was an infant and a toddler. Now she she's turning me on to all this great pop music that's out there that I didn't really know existed. So there is really uh, there's hope out there for the youth of America. <laughs> now, yeah, hopefully. Now, now I was reading, and you know you can never trust Wikipedia, but it said that you had a guitar when you were four, but you didn't start playing it until later. Is that true? Yeah, so um, I didn't have the guitar, but I had a um, babysitter when I was... Oh, actually, yeah, no, let me, let me go back. Yeah, for Christmas, I got one of these plastic guitars that, you know, my parents got at Sears or whatever. It had little plastic strings on it, and um, I probably bashed it against the sofa, uh, you know, one day, and, and that was gone. But later on in life, I guess when I was maybe nine or something, we had a... Um, a babysitter who brought over a guitar. It was a four-string tenor guitar, and um, she taught me four chords, a, a song that had four chords. And um, I took to it pretty quickly. And um, and then, you know, the babysitter didn't come around <laughs> anymore, so I didn't really play any guitar. But any time I did see a guitar, I would play those four chords uh, on somebody else's guitar, just playing four strings of the six-string guitar. And um, and then I told my parents, you know, I want to take some guitar lessons. So they said, okay, well, we'll sign you up for guitar lessons at this uh, at this music store. And I actually bought my first guitar. It was a classical guitar, a nylon string guitar, and uh, took lessons at this music store. And uh, they taught sheet music, kind of Mel Bay style guitar lessons. And it just bored me to death. It was, you know, row, row, row your boat. And I immediately wanted to quit. So I think I took like two or three lessons and, and just told my parents, I don't want to do this anymore. This sucks. <laughs> you know? So I didn't really pick up the guitar and start playing it seriously until I was 14 or 15. Um, I took a, a lesson, from, a couple of lessons from a guy who taught chords first so he taught me three chords d c and g and from there i could play sweet home alabama which that was the first real song i ever learned and i didn't learn it right but i learned i could play along a little bit and um so that's when it really started for me and it is it's taking those first lessons with a chord approach of teaching instead of the note approach i learned a few chords and um, I could play a bunch of songs. Now, when you when you got that that you know those first notes, and then you got that song under your belt, and you could play a few you know few songs, when did you start deciding that this was going to be your livelihood? And and you know it's your as I said, you're one of the lucky people that have had a very lost lasting career. But when did you decide that you said you know what I I want to do this for my life's work? I mean, did you get a band together right away, or what happened? So in eighth grade, um, I did have a band together with a few guys, and we played at uh, a cotillion we, we were all part of, and we played at a couple of parties and uh, stuff like that. Um, 
and then in high school I got in a band and we started playing bars and stuff and it was really just kind of a thing I loved doing but I felt like you know I, I got to get my education I got to get go to school got to go to college I went to college for one year and I took my guitar with me took my Les Paul with me and um, I came home after that year and I told my parents that I wanted to take off uh, a year or two from college and, and try to make it as a professional musician and um, <clears throat> I think that's when my father had his heart attack and uh, you know, my mom might have had a bit of a nervous breakdown, and but um, you know, they 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 knew my my head was in the right place and that my intentions were good and that you know uh, they just knew how difficult this industry would be and the, what the chances were. But um, that's that's when I really decided I want to really try to make a career out of this. And I I said to myself, uh, Hey, look, you know, if if I can't make enough money to buy a house that's okay as long as I can feed myself that's really all I need to do and I learned how to do that pretty quickly and I was working in a grocery store full-time at the time and and then um, after doing that for a while I I, um, I started working in a music shop and that I haven't been out of the music business ever since now is that how you ended up putting your band together because you know I always I always talk to guests about this who Back then, it wasn't like now. Like now, you know, if you want to gig with someone, you could have say, hey, send me a YouTube video. Or you can do that or you can post on Facebook. Hey, I'm looking for a guitar player. But how did you start to get the band, you know, how did you get your first band together and how did that evolve into Firehouse? <clears throat> well, I was in a, a bunch of bands before Firehouse uh, um, happened. But the, the way this the Firehouse evolved for me was – when I was working at that grocery store that I was telling you about, I put an ad up in the music store that I also told you about uh, as guitar player looking for work. Um, now, one thing about the grocery store I was working in is that they had a hair policy. Their company policy is that your hair could not touch your collar. And I always, you know, rode that borderline of being, you know, the manager having to come and say, you know, you need to go get a haircut or don't come into work. So I was, you know, I had to have very short hair. Um, but I, I put the ad up at the music store and some guys um, called me up because I was saying, you know, hey, I like Van Halen. I like Michael Schenker, um, you know, whoever else, uh, you know, was Jeff Beck or whatever. <clears throat> and they, um, they had a band and they needed a guitar player. And I auditioned and I got the gig. And um, the, the downside was, you know, hey, I got short hair. <laughs> so, and they all had long hair at the time. But, um, you know, they, they enjoyed uh, working with me. I enjoyed working with them. We, we had uh, this, a common interest in songs and everything. And I worked with them for probably nine months or so. And we played a few gigs around town in bars. And, and then they kicked me out of the band because they got another guitar player who came with another their singer. The singer that the band had quit. And um, this guitar player and this singer and um, I forget, maybe a drummer, came kind of in as a package deal. And um, there was already a guitar player in the band who owned the PA. So they decided that uh, I had to go and they got this other guy and this, this other singer who was actually quite good. And um, so I was fired from that band. And um, about a year later, 
And I was playing with some other people in, in the meantime. And about a year later, this the same guys called me back and they said, hey, would you come back and join our band again? Um, the guitar player that we hired, uh, turns out he's, he's kind of messing up a lot. And so I said, yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I really liked the band. I liked the musicians. And, <clears throat> and um, they had this new singer who I thought was really good. And, um, and that, that band, um, later, a couple of the guys quit. We got some different people. And uh, that, we changed the name to a band uh, to the name White Heat. And um, we started playing a lot around town. And then, um, you know, for one reason or another, the drummer had to leave. So we ha and, and the singer had to leave. So we had to get a new uh, drummer and a new singer. And that's when I met the drummer I've, I've been playing with now since 1984. Um, his name's Michael Foster. And uh, he, he came in and he auditioned and he played so well. And he sang so well, and he knew all 40 of the songs that we had, uh, with the exception of the few originals that we were doing. And, um, and that later on uh, kind of evolved into Firehouse, as uh, there was another band that was playing around town called Max Warrior that had uh, CJ was their singer and Perry was their bass player. And um, we liked them. They liked us. Both bands kind of broke up at the same time, and... Uh, I called up CJ and said, hey, you want to come sing on a demo we're doing? And he said, yeah, and he did. And and he joined, and we, we kept the name White Heat. And um, once we got our record deal, we found out there was uh, a couple of White Heats that were already out there that had either previously used the name or had registered for the trademark. So we had to change the name, and we changed it to Firehouse. How did you pick Firehouse, and how did you pick it the way you, you wrote it? Because you wrote it all as one word with a capital F and a capital H, which is funny because for me, Cooper Talk is with a capital C and a capital T is one word. Ah, I don't remember how the, uh, the logo got, who came up with making that look the way it looks, but uh, Michael Foster came up with the name Firehouse. He was actually going to get into the fire academy and become a, a firefighter. Um, you know, he, had, he was right out of high school when I met him. And um, well, we, once we, we, I mean, we played as White Heat uh, together. He and I, uh, we were playing five nights a week. And then I was going back playing, you know, working at the music store or, or the grocery store in the beginning, but then back at the music store. And we were playing um, in, in Norfolk, Virginia. So that was like an hour and a half drive to get, well, two hours to get there, an hour and a half back at night, uh, five nights a week, and working full-time, and it was pretty much killing killing everybody. But we, we did it. We managed to do it. But uh, he he came up with that name, and, um, you know, we, were th we had a million names that were going back and forth to try to come up with something, and nothing was sounding really good at all. The record company was getting itchy on, you guys got to come up with a name. And... Uh, we came up. He, he came up with that. We all thought about it. We thought, well, you know, it sounds cool. Sounds like a good name. Um, if the trademark is not taken and it's free, we should jump on it. Everybody's going to think we got it from the the Kiss song, which we didn't. But it did go through our minds that everybody was going to think that that's where it came from. But it actually came from our drummer, who was going to be a firefighter. 
That's funny. Now you said the record deal. Now, how did you? How did the record companies find you? Because if you're located there, I mean, were they scouring for bands? How did you hook up with that first record deal? And what is that like? You're young guys. I mean, you know, you you were all young guys, and for you, you said, you know, you, you had daytime jobs. I mean, how did the record deal come about? Well, so when we decided to um, get together. Uh, with CJ and do that demo. We we created this this. We we had him sing on a bunch of our songs. He he rewrote a lot of the lyrics and stuff and vocal melodies of of our first demo. And um, when we got done with that demo, uh, we had what we felt were some pretty darn good songs. And um, it's it's a long story. I'll try to try to go quickly. But we gave. A copy of that demo to John Bon Jovi when when you know like I was working in that music store I had this um, uh, this boss who was really cool and he got me uh, he was doing a promotion with the Bon Jovi uh, concert that came to Richmond where winners who came into his store could come back and meet you know Bon Jovi and he let me come back there as part of his team to, to help with that promotion you know and um, so I slipped John a tape, and um, he sent his security guard, his name was Danny, out into the audience to, to find me. And uh, Danny found me. I was kind of by the soundboard there watching the show, and uh, he said, hey, look, John really liked your tape. He wants you to come to Hampton, Virginia tomorrow night with the whole band and, and for a meeting. Wow. And so, of course, you know, I was freaking out. I mean... Bon Jovi was the biggest band in the world, right. and um, you know I didn't think he'd listen to the tape. And um, sure enough, we went to Hampton the next night, the whole band, and um, he said it was the best demo tape he'd heard all tour, and he wanted to try to uh, to help us. And we, we, you know, Richie also, Richie met with us as well. And um, <clears throat> well, the guy Danny who uh, who came out to find me, Danny eventually became our manager. And um, John tried to uh, get assigned to uh, to Polygram, the A and R guy there. Heard some good songs, but didn't hear any great songs. He felt, and um, they just kind of lost interest. But Danny didn't, and Danny hooked us up with this independent label up in New York City, and uh, we got a, a indie deal with them, and they flew us out to L.A. to record an album and we had gotten a, a, another tape to uh dana strum who produced the uh the slaughter of vinnie vincent records and it was before slaughter um uh, got together and dana and mark uh, dana produced i think mark co-produced um our our album out there which was, was kind of an album slash demo where if we if we couldn't really uh, get a major label deal with it. We could release it as um, as an independent album with the way the deal was structured, or we could, you know, say it's a demo to shop to major major labels and then buy out the record company. Well, ultimately that's what happened. But we were living in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time, and uh, we came back with this demo slash album that uh, Dana had produced for us out in L.A. and um, I stumbled upon a, a program director of a rock station there in uh, Charlotte. He 
said, uh, you know, I've heard about your band. Uh, and I said, well, here's the tape. You know, tell me what you think. He called me the next day. He said, like, there's six songs on here that I could play on my radio station right now. It was a 100,000-watt station with, with – it was the number one rock station in Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, he said, what song do you want me to play? I said, well, play whatever song you think your audience would like. And he picked this song called Home is Where the Heart Is. And that song was the number one most requested song on their request show every night at 8 o'clock. It was called their Hot 8 at 8. And, uh, you know, listeners would call in and say what song they wanted to, to hear. And this was the song they called in and wanted to hear. You couldn't buy the song in the record store. It was the only place you could hear it. And uh, because of that radio airplay, we could play a gig and we'd get a thousand people okay. to show up at, at the at the club or the venue where we played. And all these record companies that were in Charlotte, uh, you know, we didn't know about it at the time when we moved there, but every major label had uh, a representative there that was either in radio promotions or in marketing. So they all heard about us, and they called their record company A&R people, and they said, hey, there's this band called White Heat that's getting all this airplay. You know, um, you need to check them out. And so we had every record company that I'd ever heard of fly out to see us play, you know, somewhere in North Carolina or Virginia. And so we showcased for Atlantic Records and Geffen and A&M and uh, MCA, uh, you name it. And uh, everybody said, oh, you know, we, we like the band, you know, but uh, we don't know if it's exactly what we're looking for, you know. And uh, so we were discouraged. We had a record deal with Polygram that... Um, Kind of the guy who was going to sign us got fired, and uh, one night uh, we we met a guy named uh, Ed who worked for Epic Records, and he said, "Hey, give me a tape. I want to send it up to my guy up at, in New York." And um, that guy called three days later and uh, said, "Hey, I'd like to like to come out and see you play." When's your next show? And you know, I said we don't have a show booked, but you tell me when you can come down, and we'll create a show for you. And he said, uh, "All right, how about December 9th? And the reason I remember that is because it's our drummer's birthday. And uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, that night there was a huge ice storm. Uh, it was so bad that cars were just driving sideways down the street. And um, but lo and behold, his, his plane landed. Uh, his taxi made it to the venue where there were about five people who made it out that night. And we played, and after the show, we were all kind of thinking we did okay. You know, we didn't do great, but he said, you guys are ready for a record deal. I'm going to sign you right away. And he signed us. So that's the that's the story, how we how we got signed. What what was the feeling? I mean, because as you were saying, you know, you went from discouragement, and as you said, of course, the, the night you get a break, there's an awful storm, there's no one there. I mean, you guys must have been ecstatic when, I mean, walking off stage, you must have been, well, you know, the anticipation of we might get it. And when he said you guys are going to get a deal, it must have been a, it must have just felt like a life-changing moment. I would have felt that way had the other uh, things that had happened in the past hadn't happened because I would have believed that this is really what's going to happen. Instead, I was so skeptical and thinking, you know, you know, Look what happened with the polygram deal we had. You know, we this guy, we had already had the lawyers going back and forth, negotiating back and forth, and the guy got fired. So I think we all kind of had the, uh, look, we'll believe this when we see it kind of attitude. 
and uh, still positive, but still very uh, cautious about it. But um, you know what? He he pretty much within two weeks we were up in New Jersey working with our producer David Prater on demos for the record company, and um, he he wasn't uh, he wasn't just pulling our legs. He was uh, he was serious. Uh, so. We were, we were excited, but we were also cautious at the same time, I guess. Now, you sit there, you get the record done, and then your guys' career starts taking off. What is that like? I mean, you guys basically, it seems like even though you had some discouragement, it wasn't that long of a road to get that deal. I mean, you know, there was ups and downs, and you've been doing playing music for a long time. But what's it like when you sit there and you the, when the record is done? Do you sit there, are you still skeptical, even though the record is done? Or are you just sitting there going, I hope this sells? I mean, what goes, what, what's that, what happens when you sit there and I go, you know, in, in Hollywood, they go, that's a wrap. When the record goes, okay, that's it. We got here and we have the cover, you know, cover art's done. What goes through a young musician's mind? Well, a lot of what you said is exactly what went through. We, 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 we were done. But we knew that um, we weren't done. This was just the beginning of being in the race and that it was a very brutal race that we were about to, to get into. Uh, we were good to get, you know, happy to get to the starting line, you know, finally. But, um, you know, we had learned a lot in going through all this about how record companies work and how uh, the chances of having your band become a priority at the label is really slim. And... We didn't really have that that love from the record company at the beginning. I mean, they made a video for us with a $10,000 budget at the time, which is, I don't know, maybe 10% of what the, the big boys were getting. Uh, you know, So we got a real baby band budget for a video. There was no guarantee that that video would be played. Uh, there was no guarantee that there was going to be any effort on the record company's behalf to promote or market our album, and um, we were thrown in um, into a major label uh, with a bunch of other bands that were kicking and clawing and scratching to try to get the record company to give them some love, which is, love is also synonymous with the word money, <laughs> to promote, uh, and we didn't really get any at the, at the beginning. We got, um, they released a single to metal radio, which back in that time, there was a we, we back in that time, our genre fit in with metal radio. There was a format called metal radio, and it was thanks to a guy named Lee Abrams, who had um, a station called Z Rock, which uh, was affiliated with like fifty stations around the country, and and he syndicated it, uh, you know, bounced it off, and, and it was played on a lot of AM stations. But with this song called Shake and Tumble that they released to metal radio, we sold immediately a hundred thousand records, and and it also made it so that we could go around and play in about 50 places around the country. So we rented the cheapest tour bus that we could find and we all hopped in and we went around and we played every club in every market that Xerox had a station. And, um, when we were done, the record company went, Hmm, well, we, we, we realized that this band can reproduce their songs live. The fans that go to the shows are going out and buying the CD and the band is done with this tour, and none of them went to jail, and none of them had to go to rehab, and, and they still can speak, uh, you know, pretty well in interviews. So they aren't a bunch of screw-offs, you know. So we kind of proved to the record company that 
if they invest a little bit more in us, then maybe they'll get some return on their investment. So they did a, uh, uh, anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the, the, when we finished that record, we were thinking, wow, we, we've got something here that we're all really, really proud of, but who knows if it's going to, you know, go anywhere or sell anything. We knew that we'd love it and that we were happy, you know, about it and that if people listen to it, if people got a chance to listen to it, they might like something on it, but we didn't know whether or not the record company was going to do their job, which is to promote it. And that's, that's the hard part. Now you start getting popular. What is that like? You know, you, you start, you know, you said you, 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 it seems like you always had a, people would hear a song. So you had a good following, but when did you start feeling that you guys were a very successful band? Um, I still haven't really had that feeling yet. <laughs> um, I, I mean, even though we've we've sold some records and we've had some tours and played in front of some big audiences, I, I still look at the real successful people out there, and, and it, I think that's what inspires me to keep working. <laughs> you know, at this. But I think um, you know we were all so busy at the time. Also, I mean, the record company had us up that the first thing in the morning to go in and do the morning show with the the radio station that was supporting our record. And then we'd go do either another morning show or another interview or something. And then we'd, uh, you know, go uh, to lunch with another radio station person or a record company person. Then we'd go do a sound check. Then we'd go have dinner with a radio guy or the promo guy or one of his people. Then we'd do the show. Then we'd hop on the bus and go to sleep because we had to be at the next place to repeat that cycle. And um, as we were getting the reports from our manager saying, hey, look, you know, uh, Don't Treat Me Bad has just cracked into the top 40, um, we were, of course, celebrating and going, wow. But we were going, wow, you know, we, we, we've got like 10 interviews we got to do today. <laughs> we've got the sound check and we got the show. And so we didn't really get to, uh, to really uh, party all that much. We were real happy, and we were, you know, they they kept us really busy, which was, which was great because when the record company saying, hey, you know, we want to do another video for Don't Treat Me Bad because the first video that we did for you was the ten thousand dollar video, we want to do a hundred thousand dollar video for you for that, and uh, the, the next day you're going to shoot a video for Love of a Lifetime. Um, uh, you know, we're thinking, wow, you know, we've. We, we've made it, you know, we have, we have made it. And, but we were still thinking, gosh, we, we really want to, we want to go further and we want to go longer. It was longevity was the, the, the goal, I think, for everybody. Now, cause you guys had such a busy schedule and, you know, as you said, the interviews and stuff like that, at what point did you start focusing on getting material for a next album? When does, when does that process start and how does your songwriting, does your songwriting styles and, and how you do it, does it suffer when you are so busy or do you just sit there and think of something and put it in the back of your subconscious of your mind? Well, that is an interesting question. I, I it, gave, it reminds me of the story that happened when we had finished, we were out on the tour with Warrant that year and, the, and Warrant had uh, Cherry Pie and Heaven and I think Heaven was a number one song. And so it, it, sold, it sold out everywhere that tour went, 20,000 people every night. You know, I think it was all summer long, maybe four months, something like that. And, um, you know, it, it was hard when you're that age to not want to go out and party every night. 
and to stay home and work on writing songs. But I was lucky enough to to have the balance to continue working on songwriting, and um, and CJ did too. And we we both worked, and we were thinking about writing songs all the time. I always say that you know, if the minute you stop thinking about trying to write a song, is when no songs come out of your mind, you know, or, or out of your instrument, out of your voice. You know, no songs are going to be written if you're not thinking about writing a song. <clears throat> but um, we finished that tour. We had a meeting up at the uh, record company about something. And they said, hey, we, we want you to go in and uh, meet Tommy Mottola. He wants to meet you. And we were like, Tommy Mottola, that's the head of all Sony music. You know, he's, he's like the biggest record company executive in the world. Let's, let's go meet him. And he said, hey, guys, you can't have the material for your second record ready soon enough and um we said uh, okay we're ready as we've been writing we've been doing our homework and we um went in pretty much right away uh, i mean it wasn't it wasn't a month after that conversation where we were back in a studio making our second record and uh it was we, we were lucky that we were able to uh to to be to think ahead enough to, to do our homework to, to write songs out on the road. Now, you won a music award in 1992. 91. 91. And that was uh, and you, Nirvana and Alice in Chains are still in, the, uh, in that category. Did you know, you guys won, but did you know that soon the music scene would be shifting? Or did you guys... Were you prepared for that? Because I know you, you end up, you know, you went to Asia and Europe. Uh, but what is that like when you're sitting there and you guys win that and you're on the top of the game and it starts to change? Do you do you sit there? Do you feel like you're resilient? You can overcome it? Or is it a little, is it a little, uh, I can't think of the word, uh, not anticipating. Is it a little, do you get antsy? Did you get worried? Well, at that time, we had no idea that that was about to happen. Um you know, we thought that people that liked this style of music were all out there. There was there were millions of them, and that all we had to do was reach them, and um, we we'd still be able to reach our audience. Um, it, it, you know, we we won that that award, and and we didn't think we were going to win because Nirvana had already sold you know I don't know five million records at at that time when they just had released that that amazing first album of theirs, and Alice in Chains. You know, what a great band. Um, we thought it was nice to be nominated, but uh, I guess the ballots for that award had gone out before those bands blew up as big as they did, and, and we, you know, managed to, the ballots were returned in time so that we were able to, to win that. But it wasn't really until the third record that we uh, and, and let me just back up one one more thing. A after we made that second record, we went on tour with Tesla. And that was a, a tour that summer. They had that five-man acoustical jam uh, album that they had released with uh, their cover of the the song "Signs." And that 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 album had sold five million records. And that that album and that tour was so big for them that you know we got to go out with them and play in front of their audience. And it was a six-week tour that turned into a nine-month tour. Wow! Because the promoters kept saying. Uh, why don't you guys come back here again? Because it, it sold out the last time. We we went to a lot of these markets three times and sold out three times. And, and so that was a wonderful tour to be out with those guys who are the nicest people in the world 
and uh, and get to play for their audience in around the country three times. I mean, I, I, I that uh, <laughs> that was a rare thing um, for us certainly, but um, I think for a lot of bands. But I think that helped us out a lot too, and and get getting um, in front of a lot of people so they could check us out live. But when it came time to uh, do our third record, that's when um, you know the writing was kind of on the wall. I think in a lot of ways, because we were watching a lot of our peers put out albums. Uh, you know, it was in '94, '95 is is when you know I think when '94 is when we were took about maybe six months off to write. And uh, and record. We recorded with Ron Nevison, a great producer. He produced every classic rock artist, and we loved his work. Um, and um, we were watching a lot of these great, you know, top shelf bands that had sold millions and millions of records come out with their new album and not do well because they didn't. They weren't all, new alternative bands. They were classic hard rock, melodic rock bands. And um, we didn't we didn't change our style uh, to try to fit in with what was going on at the time. We just did the best we could, and um, knowing that you know it, it probably isn't going to sell like the, the the first two records, but we'll still put out a record that we love and we want to play live every night. And um, lo and behold, we got a, a song that uh, was a top fifteen hit out of that uh, out of that album. So. It just kind of goes to show you that if if you just do what you really love to do and and um, follow your heart musically, then um, you you might get lucky and and have some success with it. I mean, it it didn't sell millions of records, but it it did enough to make the record company at least give us another album out of their record deal that we had with them. So, um, you know, and we like you said, we did go and tour all over the world at that point. And we, we'd already toured Europe a bunch, uh, over there in Japan a bunch, but um, we got to go play a lot of countries in Southeast Asia where our third album had taken off. And that's kind of what sustained our career, I think, uh, because when things got tough over in America for us to be able to get gigs and tour, uh, we could go over to Southeast Asia and play in front of you know tens of thousands of people. And... Um, and make a living, and um, and then we come back in here and play clubs or, or open up with. We opened up for uh, Poison um, back in that those days um, after that third album that summer, and so it's all coming back to me now. I'm sorry, I'm just rambling. Oh, on it's fine. No, no. Now, now you're sitting on because I know you said you were very big Asian, you know, different places. And I talked to some guys who said, you know, their band they should have gone over and cap- capitalized on the Asian market because it's a great market. Now, at what point during you're playing with a band, because you are friends with these guys, you've been for a while, when do you start in your head focusing going, you know what, I, I want to do something solo? And, and and for someone who's been in a band and you've had popularity, that must be something scary because it's all of a sudden, you know, it's just you. I mean, I know you, you came out with, I believe, your first solo album in 2004. Was that, did the, had the band broken up or, or what yeah. had happened to get you to sit there and finally say, I got to do this. And then how did your, did your songwriting style differ? Because now it was just you. It wasn't for the whole band. Well, um, you know, we never broke up. We're, you know, we're still going strong and it's just, uh, I had put a lot of ideas out there, 
um, to be considered to be on the album, uh, whatever Firehouse album. And, uh, you know, not all your ideas are going get, to get the nod from everybody. So you just kind of put them over in the corner in a little pile. And then when that pile builds up enough, uh, you try to finish them or, or try to, uh, you know, record them properly. I had recorded, um, let's see, the, the, the Good Acoustics album, which was the last album on Sony. Um, I produced that one at a studio um, where the Allman Brothers had done some demo work and some, um, uh, some kind of record, recording stuff. Uh, with this this guy I knew in Sarasota where I was living at the time, Sarasota, Florida, and um, I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from Ron Nevison about recording, and I I kind of invested every penny that I had left over from paying my bills into recording equipment. And um, when I got to uh, the point where I had these songs, I I had a little studio in my house, and I I thought, you know what, I should go ahead and finish these off, and then. I finished off, uh, I don't know, seven or so, and I wrote about three new ones, and um, I just put it out there, and it was just one of those things where I was, thought, you know, what the heck, I'm going to put it out myself, no record company, I don't want to have any record company saying, oh, you know, we, we don't hear a single, or I didn't even want to try to do a deal, I just wanted to put out some CDs, so I had a bunch pressed up and put them up on a website, and um, and that's kind of what started it. It was just the idea of you know I can do this in my spare time, um, and and if the ideas don't really fit Firehouse, and they do fit my voice, which uh, you know nobody can sing like like CJ. I mean CJ's got an amazing range and a lot of power. He can sing, you know, eight days a week <laughs> and um, all day. <laughs> just one of those kind of singers. And uh, my voice doesn't have, you know, that kind of range or, or power or whatever. But if I have a song that'll fit my voice, then, uh, you know, I can put it in that pile of songs and put it out there. So that's that's kind of when when it started happening was around 2003. Uh, and I just decided to finish finish some of them up. Was was there a different feeling of accomplishment from when you got your first album done with a band to when you got your first album done as a solo artist? Hmm. I, I guess, I guess it's a, in a lot of ways it's the same. You know, you finish, there's, it's a really good feeling in sitting in the control room and listening to the, the final mixes back to back and hear the songs completed um, and, and going, wow, you know, it's time to let go of this. I mean, I, I feel like... Um, I, I always feel like I could go back and fix, I could sing that a little better, I could play that little solo better, you know, that rhythm guitar, I could, could have done this chord instead of that chord, but ultimately you just get to a point where you're, you go, it's time to let go and move on, and, um, I, but it's still, a, a, you know, the giving birth kind of analogy uh, feeling in all of them is like, wow, you know, it, there was a lot of work I put into this, and um, it's good to have it done, and I'm hoping people will, will like it. So it's the anxiety, I think, mo- more than anything, of hoping that people will listen to it and, and find something they like. Now, were you going out and playing by yourself to support it, or were you just selling, just putting them out there, the CDs out there? 
Yeah, I was just putting them out there. Um, we have an agreement in our band where our band is our full-time mothership for everybody. Everybody counts on everybody to be able to feed their families with our band, Firehouse. So any side projects or recording projects. And um, if I were to get a gig, which I've gotten a few, um, and Firehouse gets a gig, I've got to cancel that gig. And people get hurt when, when you do that. So I've um, just kind of come to the realization that, you know, not playing live is um, the easier way of, of having a side career going because you don't have the, uh, the, the, the chance of having promoters that hire you and sell tickets and then you get a firehouse gig and you got to cancel the other gigs and, and then it, it kind of makes, it, it hurts people. So I've uh, just felt that, um, you know, I'll, I'll wait and play this stuff live when, um, when firehouse decides to take a break, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. Now, now you've also, you've recorded a few other solo albums. Now, how did you sit there and compile the stuff there too? I mean, it's like, it's like, because you do constantly write and do you see your songwriting style change as you grow older you know i mean we all have different views and we all mature and do you see that in your everyday writing yeah i really do i i feel like the stuff i'm writing today especially lyrically is um more about stuff i care about um today as a you know a father and a husband and a you know a grown man as opposed to a um you know a young man uh rocking and rolling every night you know there's definitely a different mindset but um you know, my second record uh, that I put out was an instrumental record, and, and that was um, kind of, uh, I don't know what the inspired, I guess. I mean, I always loved instrumental guitarists and, and big fan of, of, you know, Alan Holdsworth, who, rest in peace, he just passed away, but, uh, Al Dimiola and Steve Morse and guys like that. And I always wanted to do an instrumental record, but what really kicked me in the, in the butt to go and record one or to write and record one was um, I got a guitar endorsement and the um, guitar company said, hey, we'd love to, you know, send you around to a couple of music stores so you can, you know, do some demoing of these guitars and, and an amplifier company I was endorsed with, he wanted to do the same thing. So I thought, you know, this is really the time to, to get some material together so that I can uh, go out and play and not just play a bunch of firehouse riffs. I can actually play something that will demonstrate these guitars and amps. And um, I thought, well, if I have five songs, five instrumental songs, then that'll be enough. And I wrote five songs, and um, and I just kind of got really, really uh, into it and really enjoyed doing it. So I, I wrote another five, and then I had an album. So I, I did a few clinics and, and some, some demonstration kind of stuff around the country and um, had this album this instrumental album to uh, support it and then the last two albums that I've, I've done that are completed since then have been cover tunes albums so that that's kind of helped me uh, educate me in a way as a songwriter because when you take somebody else's like like the first the third solo album I did was all songs from the late 1800s early 1900s up until about 1920 uh, the, the Restoration Era, right after the Civil War, and um, right right in that time frame, there was a lot of cool old bluegrass and uh, old 
you know, country western and gospel kind of songs that um, I thought, you know, that that would be a cool idea to kind of do some of these songs and kind of do them my way. And um, I wouldn't really have to write anything. I could rearrange them and put some of my own riffs in there and a couple of my own melodies, but uh, the lyrics were written and... and uh, and it was a different style for me too. It was it was more, uh, you know, less rock and more traditional in some ways, and a little bit more eclectic in other ways. And so I got to kind of you know break out all the instruments that I had in my closet, uh, you know, a banjo and a mandolin and uh, the acoustic guitars and and the Telecaster and, and the different guitar sounds and and um, do the, the, that album and and I actually met more people with that through that album who learned about me or discovered my music um, and it's I guess it's because it's kind of something kind of off the beaten path you know and that, that album was called Deep South it was all songs that were um, that originated in the, in the deep south of the United States and then um, my last you know, this album, my last, my fourth solo album is all songs that are cover tunes from my childhood. So a lot of them are hard rock songs and a lot of them are funk songs. And like I told you in the beginning of our interview, and a lot of them are kind of pop songs that that I, you know, remember, you know, going to the shoe store with my mom and, and Ricky Don't Lose That Number came on and I was like, wow, that's such a cool song. And, uh, you know, I was going to get my braces tightened and, you know, no time left for you came on you know, by the guess who and so songs like that i shot the sheriff i, I remember going to hockey camp I, I used to play hockey and um going to hockey camp and that song came on and that song just blew my mind i had 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 to record that on this covers tunes album so i i, I learned so much from those artists who wrote them and also the producers and, and engineers who recorded those songs and um, so I really, really uh, took that as a learning experience and, and trying to become a better singer and, and a better guitar player and better recording artist. And then now I'm um, currently uh, seven songs into my fifth solo album. And uh, so I've got two or three to go. And, um, you know, who knows how, how the last ones will, will finish. But, uh, you know, I've just been releasing them one at a time. As soon as I finish the song, I release it as a single. And... Um, it's kind of like that giving birth analogy, and I've just given birth one at a time instead of ten at a time, like you had to do before with holding on to your songs until you got an album ready. Yeah, how is that as a musician? I mean, it must be cool because, as you said, you can release them one at a time, and you can see the feedback. Whereas before, you had to wait. Do you like that, or did you like just put giving the whole, putting that whole album out? I like doing them one at a time better. I think uh, for several reasons. One, I'm you know very anxious and. Um, Finishing something and then having to wait until you've got nine more finished uh, just about drives me crazy. So I, I really like that for that reason. I also like the fact that you can really go in and focus on the material of one song so much better than trying to focus on ten songs at once. Uh, I think you can make, get better quality work by thinking about the one song and getting the best lyric in there and getting the best melody and and, and getting the best riff and uh, chord progressions or whatever, um, I think that that when you really think about one song at a time, 
it's 10 times better than thinking about 10 songs at a time. And, um, you know, the cool thing is you, you put it out there. People can buy it on iTunes. Uh, some of these songs I've, I've done videos with, like the one I sent you. Right. Um, and, um, you know, people can hear that I'm, I'm still, you know, still going and still doing stuff. And, and, uh, and it's fun. You know, uh, it's, it's hard to get to new people, but the people that I have existing that are in, in my existing emailing list or whatever on Twitter, um, who, who happen to open up their news feed at the moment can, can see that I got something new out there and they can go check it out. And yeah, it's true. And it's so funny because, you know, if you have listened to a band, you know, for a long time, you want to see what people are doing. Like me, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up a huge Springsteen fan. Well, I know Gary Talent's doing his own stuff. So I want to go explore that. And it's like, you know, if someone, you know, you know, is a huge Firehouse fan, they want to see what you're still playing. And I think it's, it's exciting. I think that's good now because, you know, where I miss the whole process of going and buying an album and stuff like that. Now at least you can check the music out before you go get that album or before you buy that single, and I think it expands your audience a lot. I do too, and I think it's um, it's a it's fun to watch how it works when um, you know you check your email in the morning and somebody's bought your um, your solo music package. Uh, you know, I have this package where you can buy the CDs I have out, and um, and I can only imagine that they were doing what you described and thinking, oh, you know what? Who's the guitar player of Firehouse? Oh, his name's Bill Leverty. Oh, let's go check out Leverty.com. Oh, wow, look. Hey, I like the way that sounds because i got a music player on my on my uh, website like everybody else does. And, and you can listen to these songs. And then when people actually want to support the artist, it's, uh, it's a great feeling. You know, the other thing that I've got is uh, uh, a web designer who's really good. And he's made it so that if you want to just buy the mp3 directly from me and down it, download it directly from my website you can do that and um, I love Apple iTunes they're great and everything but the downside is that they take 30% and your digital distributor takes another 10% so the artist gets 60 cents well when you buy it directly from me I get all 99 cents of the <laughs> of the uh, song so that's a cool thing that's just happened recently um, so um, it is an interesting world that we live in now with the internet and with uh, the way the industry's changed, especially with bands of our genre that aren't played on the radio regularly, that we do have the internet now. And um, the internet's our friend. We can connect with our fans, with our listeners, with our friends, and, and, and be in touch with people Whereas in the old days, it was you relied on the record company to do all that, and uh, a lot of times the record company wouldn't do it. Right. So, now you yeah. got, you guys have some live dates coming up with Firehouse. Are you excited about that? Oh man, I would love it. That's it's great. You know, we did fifty five shows last year, all in America. We did that. That's with no international stuff. Um, although we we might have got. I think we did a Bahamas show, uh, <laughs> a wedding. We played a private wedding, which was great. But this year I see as being uh, very similar to that uh, last year, which uh, you know our touring style has been um, fly out on a Friday morning, play a couple of shows Friday night, Saturday night, fly home on a Sunday. And um, Fridays and Saturday nights are a lot better for people our age than a Tuesday night where you got to get up and go to work and, and 
and that kind of thing. When we were in our 20s and 30s, um, our audience was more into going out on a Tuesday night. Not so much anymore, but um, yeah, we're, we're still going and we're still playing a lot. And um, we got a great agent up in Minneapolis, ARM Entertainment. And, um, you know, we're still able to, uh, to, to make a living doing this. And I, I really have to thank our fans for that because without them, we'd all have to you know, we'd all, life would be a lot different. Right. Now, when do you think your uh, solo album will be done? Well, it's, it's, if I want to, I could put it out right now if I wanted to put out an album with seven songs on it. Uh, but I, I think an album should have ten songs on it so that people get their money's worth. So however long it takes me to finish three more songs, um, you know, I, I, I would think, uh, I got ideas for three, but it, it kind of depends on how they evolve and whether I go, okay, that's really, really good enough. So I, I don't know. Um, hopefully, you know, I'll be able to write them and record them and get them done in a month. But knowing me, it'll be probably four months from now. now so, will you play any of the solo stuff at a Firehouse show or is Firehouse show strictly Firehouse? Firehouse is Firehouse. we got enough songs where, uh, you know, we, we're, we're struggling to get, uh, you know, uh, our material into a, a firehouse set so the side project material is is just that's just that i don't i don't play it live i do sing a song uh usually when we do a headlining show but it's a firehouse song um so i i got a question for you i've never asked someone this it just came to my head do you miss when you're doing an encore do you miss people lighting the actual lighter to putting their cell phones up now? I just thought of that because I went to a concert and people put their cell phones up. But the lighter was such an integral part back before and the Frisbee before. Do you miss it when you see cell phones instead of a damn Bic? It's still it's still changing. Uh, you know, it kind of – I do miss the lighter. The lighter was uh, kind of uh, – it was our era, you know. Now everybody puts up the cell phone, and that's a great feeling too. I mean, to know that people – like you enough to, to put their cell phone up there and the fact that maybe some of them um, have quit smoking you know right. uh, you know I mean no, no nothing against people who want to smoke it's just I lost my mom to lung cancer but uh, you know if if um, it, the way things are changing it, it just is crazy I mean I, we were in Indonesia last year and um, I looked up for my guitar and there was a drone with a camera on it right I could have put my finger out and touched wow. it it was pretty much right in front of my nose and it was uh, broadcasting over those big screens on each side of the uh, stage and i thought wow you know i hadn't seen that in america yet and um you know we've seen the cameras in the pit and everything and, and on a on a big jib or something like that but not on a drone right in front of me right while i'm playing a solo and um you know it's just amazing how things evolve and things change and, and the technology and everything. So I guess we've gone from Bic lighter to cell phone to drone. Exactly. You know, so what's next? I know. I, I want to thank you for coming on, man. This has been a great interview. Uh, oh, your, your, thanks so much, Steve. Your website is leverty.com, L-E-V-E-R-T-Y. What's your, your Twitter is? At uh, Leverty, yeah. So people follow him on Twitter. Also follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 600 episodes. You can also email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. Tell me who you want to hear. I'll try to get them. Sometimes I get, you know, sometimes it happens. Also, don't forget my other uh, website when I have my health problem. Uh, I wrote that cookbook, StopTheSalt.com. It's 120 low-sodium recipes, no pictures to intimidate you, 
No big long list of ingredients. If you don't have cumin, don't worry. You don't need cumin. I cook with cumin, but I know how to cook. So this is easy, and you can get it at Amazon.com, and you can get it at BarnesandNoble.com, but if you get it at StopTheSalt.com, I make more money, and I will sign it for you. So follow Bill Leverty. Go to his website, Leverty.com. Follow me, at CooperTalk. Uh, Instagram, CooperTalk1. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.